0: Be strong and courageous, stand firm in your faith, let all you do be done in love, may you know God's smile, and that you are loved beyond your wildest imagination.
1: Welcome to the Missing Voices Project. My name is Justin Forbes, and this podcast is all about youth ministry, young people on the margins of society and the church, and how we might better love, serve, and learn from those young people. I'm convinced that these often overlooked or forgotten adolescents belong in the church, and that our youth ministry should take them seriously. So with each episode, we'll take a look at these ideas and together wrestle with what the future of youth ministry might just look like. Let's get into it. Okay. Katie Schaefer from Raleigh, North Carolina. Here we are on the phone. In fact, Katie and I have been uh, courting one another to have this conversation for months now. So I'm really happy that it has worked out for us to be able to talk. So Katie is a graduate of Flagler College from 1990. She was a student of Martha Shin and Maddie Hart and Dr. King. And so she comes out of this group. But it's funny because Katie and I have a very similar, I guess, trajectory in some ways. She uh, went to Flagler College. Then did you go straight down to North Palm right after that?
0: Yes, right after I graduated.
1: Okay. So you went down to North Palm Beach and worked at First Pres North Palm down there for a bit. And then from there, was that when you went to Princeton Seminary after that?
0: Yes. I had a couple of years just working around Palm Beach County at a bookstore and then um, ended up at Princeton Seminary Um with Mac, we got married, and we both ended up going to seminary at the same time. Cool,
1: cool. So, yeah. Graduated from Princeton Seminary what year?
0: Uh, let's see. 99. Um, 99.
1: 1999, yes. Very good. And were you there with Neil McGee at the same time?
0: Yes, I was. (laughs) Neil's a very close friend. We did Young Life together at Flagler and then ended up at Princeton at the same time. So that was just extra special.
1: And Matt Fry. Well, yeah. Okay. <laughs> These are some names from the past. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Those were all the uh, youth ministers at First Prayer's Orlando when I was a, a kid yeah. in Orlando. Yeah. So that is hilarious. Very cool. Yeah. So you are married to Mac and you have four children. You live in Raleigh. And we're calling you and having this conversation with you today because of, you know, one part of the Missing Voices Project has been the idea that the church has to try and do a better job of attending to the voice of young people in the LGBT community. And I have to say, I'm both like really excited to talk to you and I'm a little bit nervous and I'm a little bit nervous because this is such a topic that it's just so polarizing and it's full of anxiety and it's full of fear. Um, I don't even know if I could explain or tell you why that's true, but I just know it's true. And, um, My experience in youth ministry with young people that were not heterosexual, so anything other than heterosexual, is that they felt so much shame and fear to ever reveal that to me in any way. Um, And it broke my heart because I loved and cared for those young people. So this is not a theoretical category of people. These are sons and daughters and friends and, you know, like... Uh, siblings, And these are people that we love, that we know, that we love, that we care about. And so one of the reasons we wanted to have you help us walk into this conversation is because you have, have experienced this community in a very up close and personal way, being a mother. And so I want to just I guess just hand it off to you now to open this conversation by sharing your story. And I'm so grateful that you're willing to do that. But, mm-hmm. uh, so yeah, Katie help us, <laughs> help us move into this, into this conversation right. in a way that may approach faithfulness.
0: Well, thank you for having me on here. I, um, I have to say, you know, even within the LGBT LGBT Um, Bracket the T is still really dealt with a little bit different than the um, L, G, and the B. We have four children: and um, Hunter, Hannah, Tori, and Sky. I had four kids in five years. I hardly even remember uh, doing that, but um, (laughs) those years are a blur. But um, but Hunter is our oldest child, and um, had I had Hunter my last semester at Princeton, actually. Um, Took everything pass-fail that last semester and uh, managed to graduate. Um, But Hunter, you know, was our first child, born into uh, the Presbyterian church world, um, loved and nurtured at uh, the Presbyterian church of Lawrenceville, which is where Mac and I both worked after we finished at the seminary. Um, And but what uh, what was abundantly clear, even as a first-time mother, was that my child was not like other people's children that were boys, um, that were biologically boys. So, so, right, so from the time Hunter was about 18 months old and could articulate any kind of preference, I mean, for anything, for what color crayon or for what toy out in the McDonald's box or what toy, um, you know, laying on the floor— it was always, um, it would always been towards um, what you would expect, like, a little girl to want, you know, so it was the shocking pink crayons from the crayon box, it was the Power Ranger, the pink Power Ranger, it was the Tinkerbell, it was, you know, not, it was nothing that would have been traditionally um, boy-oriented, you know, that's what, we had grown up with and and one of my closest friends at the seminary Amy Ellen was running the food service and I was her manager at the president's dining hall and um, dining room and so I I spent a lot of time with her youngest child no I mean her child Noah who is this almost the same age as Hunter so I'd have the the, those two together I just became very aware that Hunter um, by nature was very different than the other little boys that um, I that my friends had as children, and and that really never went away. And, and even starting preschool at the um, Presbyterian Church of Lawrenceville, um, the first thing Hunter would do when she got to school was put on a dress, and um, a, a pink sparkly dress, and just had no interest in the fireman suits or the anything you would expect a little boy to put on, and. And so it was always it was always part of our story and part of what we were watching. But we also um, talked to enough people, talk to preschool teachers to understand that, you know, well, little kids are pretty gender fluid. They, they haven't learned gender roles yet. They um, they're going to gravitate towards things that interest them. And, and so we just kind of chopped it up to, well, you know, Mac is a great artist, you know, maybe Hunter has a lot of those artistic um, jeans where, you know, the pink sparkly dress is of course better than the ugly plaid vest that, you know, <laughs> that's wool and scratchy and um, that nobody wants to put on. So, so there was always there. Um, and then we had Hannah 16 months later than Hunter. So Hannah, Hannah was two when Hunter was three, and, um, you know, I used to kind of joke that I, it was like I had two, two little girls, um, and we, we didn't want to ever shame Hunter, and, and we're pretty open to uh, just letting her play with whatever she wanted to play with, and, um, but, but it, it, the unsettling piece, of course, this was 20 years ago, was, you know, why is my kid so different, then, right. you know, why does my kid not want to want a soccer ball or not want anything to do with Thomas the Tank Engine, you know, or any of that, any of those things that the culture says that, you know, my kid was supposed to be into and playing with. And that was never the case. Never. And so that.
1: And did that did that create like a tension with friends or with uh, people at the church? I mean, were they like, why is Hunter not well, doing he, this? or
0: No, the beauty of of having to um, to uh, live into what was happening was that we were in a church community and Mac was the associate and I was running the children's ministry and our kids were growing up in, you know, a church environment. And so people loved, um, loved Hunter, loved our other kids. Um, so if, if in all places we had to learn how to be um, part of this world, at least it was the church. I, I mean, it's, and that is not always the case for, for a lot of people, but, um, I think being born into a church and it's, it's, like, you've got all these people who've known you since you were a baby and, um, and then they watch a child, you know, develop and unfold. Um, mm. we did leave, we did leave, um, Lawrenceville for Scottsdale Arizona when Hunter was um, in preschool and so the bulk of the bulk of our kids young lives were in Scottsdale and then here in Raleigh so okay. um, but always in the context of a church community. so mm. um, so the message to all of our kids over all these years was that God loves you you are beautifully and wonderfully made we love you just the way you are um you are you know our pastor's child you know all those things and so um so there was a lot of positive good um intention and community building around where we worked hmm. and our children so if that makes sense but um
1: yeah that's i mean that's actually far more hopeful and beautiful than i sort of expected
0: <laughs> yeah i think it i honestly i think it has to do with being clergy you know we uh, people really saw a lot of our lives. They watched us raise children, and we, we were always around. So it's, I think it's a little bit different than a layperson who kind of comes in, you know, comes in for a Sunday for an hour, right, and then leaves. And you're, and maybe, what, 52 weeks a year, you see their kid for an hour, you know, if if they come every Sunday. So really, we're talking about half to a quarter of that, that, that most um, children's ministers or um, or whoever that's dealing with a gender non-conforming kid would actually be around that kid and their family. Right. So, right. So we were definitely in the, in the, um, in a good place to have, to be surrounded by um, the community and, um, and what, what it's supposed to look like.
1: <laughs> and so how did that continue on? You moved to Raleigh, you went to Scottsdale then to Raleigh and how did that you know continue to unfold?
0: That's where it got, that's where it got a little nutty. Um, in uh, in Arizona, we were able to kind of funnel Hunter into gymnastics, but it was men's gymnastics. And of course Hunter wanted to do cheerleading that whole time, but mm. you can't be a, a male cheerleader. And of course Hunter didn't want to be a male cheerleader. She wanted to be a girl cheerleader. And so there was this constant tension, even in Arizona, And then we left Arizona and came to Raleigh's and Mac is head of staff at another Presbyterian church. And, um, and I work at a different Presbyterian church, but, um, but when we got here, Hunter started fifth grade. And um, that's the first time that um, that fifth grade year that other kids in Hunter's class started to really make fun of Hunter. And um, some of the bullying started with how feminine Hunter was and and we still um we still felt like until puberty kicked in we really weren't sure you know which um which how hunter was gonna like wrangle middle school um and fifth grade was really um that was tough and and hunter had only girlfriends and um but was a popular you know kind empathetic everyone liked hunter and um And so it wasn't a social issue as much as it was kids trying to figure out who this person was, Sure, (laughs) you know, and box them in. You're either this or that, and you're not meeting what I think a little boy should be doing. And so I'm going to lump you in this category. And that was starting to happen with other classmates for the first time
1: Hmm.
0: in fifth grade. So by the time Hunter ended up at the middle school, which is an arts magnet, and it's been an amazing middle school. There were other kids um, coming from all over Raleigh to this magnet middle school. That's our base school, but it, it helped open and broaden the door to um, to different kinds of kids, artistic kids, musically talented kids, um, and just that transition to middle school was. Uh, difficult, but also a good thing because um, because Hunter started to really wrestle with, who am I? Am I gay? Hmm. Um, I think I'm gay. I'm going to, you know, confide in the art teacher, confide in the um, counselor, you know, but now Hunter's sister was at middle school um, as well. And so there was tension with Hannah, you know, watching what Hunter was wearing to school, and Hunter was sneaking things to school and changing, you know, so it was, it was very stressful uh, on our family because, like, we just didn't understand. I didn't know how to help, and I didn't know what was going on, and um, I really just thought, well, Hunter's gay. Um, let's just, you know, move forward with that and, and we can, we can figure that out. And, but that's just really not what was going on. And it took Hunter a couple years to, to figure that out. And so Hunter came out as gay, um, at 13 and then it just didn't, that wasn't quite the answer. And, um, and I didn't understand why that couldn't, like, we couldn't just move on. Yes. You know, Hunter told us. And let's move on with our life. Um, But that's not what happened. And the anxiety and the, um, the, we just didn't really know what to, what was going on. And I don't know how else to say it, but, but we just, we, there was no playbook. We didn't, we didn't know what we were dealing with. And so, (laughs) you know, by the time Hunter went to ninth grade, Hunter, she took the opportunity to go from middle school to high school. And, present herself to this big high school as, as a girl. And um, she yeah. looked very androgynous. Um, you couldn't really tell if you were looking at what the world would say as either a girl or a boy. You just didn't know. And so she took the opportunity to present herself to her teachers as a she. And the first time we ever hmm. understood that was going to the open house in October of ninth grade. It was meet the teacher night. And uh, the first teacher, um, you know, we came up after her little presentation, and we said hi. You know, I'm Katie Schaefer. I'm Hunter's mom. And this, this lady goes, "Oh, we love Hunter. She's such a great student." And my husband and I just kind of froze in our tracks. And the teacher walked away, and we looked at each other, and we said, "You know, did did she, did that woman just call Hunter a she?" Wow. And that at that moment, it, it became very apparent what was going on. And we went to the next class. The same thing happened. Yeah. The next class. Cause you had to walk the schedule. Sure. So we went to eight different classes where every single one of those people thought our kid was, was female.
1: So, so I, we okay. Left- hold on. I have yeah. so many questions. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> so when you, earlier, when you said that Hunter was going to school, dressed one way, sneaking another way, was yeah. that Hunter went to school dressed like a boy and then changed yes. clothes to be dressed like a girl?
0: Yeah, usually shoes to put on high heels.
1: Okay. Yes. Okay. And um, so then this shift going into ninth grade, was that, I mean, it doesn't sound like that was something that was uh, a corporate decision necessarily. Right. So Hunter took it upon herself to then present herself as a female yes. in ninth grade. And that was news to you when you went to the uh, meet your parent thing or whatever.
0: Yes. Uh, my husband h- had gone. Um... My husband and Hunter had gone to meet with um, a guidance counselor before school started. And Hunter had asked this lady who, who was a guidance counselor, you know, do you know what transgender is? Because that's what I am. And, you know, Mac and I just really weren't sure if that was really what was going on or not. And so, um, sure. but Hunter knew, she knew. And, you know, we, Hunter was yeah. way ahead of us. And as parents, we... We had to catch up. We knew we were, um, we knew there was something that just the pieces weren't falling into place about just being gay. It just wasn't because the clo- the outer presentation of our child was not matching that, and so um, so that's where things started to align. You know, in ninth grade, Hunter was finally starting to to add the way she presented herself to the world. According to how she felt on the inside, which is what really she wasn't able to do in middle school, but took the opportunity to do heading into ninth grade um, to really live out um, who she knows herself to be on the inside. And so we were just, you know, as parents, we were just kind of behind behind a little bit. And, and there were many times we had to say to Hunter, you know, just slow down. You have had a long time to think about this and we are playing catch up. Mm -hmm. So we, we need to understand. And, um, and she also had not really hit puberty. And so, Mm. um, so with, with a lot of, um, information and a lot of, um, education and a lot of, uh, help, we, we saw a therapist who connected us to um, Duke Medical Center um, b- because it became a life or death uh, situation for for us, and that in that Hunter, if Hunter was not um, given the opportunity to um, have hormone therapy or to to have her outward presentation line up with who she is on the inside, that that source of anxiety and un treated teenagers increases a suicide risk by four times
1: right that makes and so sense. when we
0: were meeting with a counselor trying to understand what was going on and hunter was diagnosed with gender dysphoria and um and that this was this, uh, this was, was a, a real, real there wasn't, wasn't making, making this up. This, 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 this was, was this, is this is really who she is, is. Mm-hmm. um that, <laughs> that it became, became a choice, a choice of life, of life or, death, or death because uh, we, we, we were not, not willing, willing to gamble, to gamble on, on being wrong, being wrong. because um, it, it, we, 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 we love, love our, child our child too much. Too much. And, and as as, as, um, as there was no playbook, there was no one to help except a couple of people here in Raleigh, our counselor who knew one person at Duke that might be able to help, you know, and she, she, it was, we were in the right place at the right time. And I thank God tremendously for that because if we had still been in Scottsdale or if we had been somewhere else, um, we I don't know what we would have done.
1: Katie, okay, so as you're saying all this, I'm thinking, you know, I'm sort of wearing my, uh, my pastor hat, my ministry hat. And I'm thinking these parents are probably laying in bed at night, terrified, asking questions with no clear answers trying to figure out how to love their child. Yes. Trying to figure out how to support their child, sort of at odds with what they, I'm guessing, probably all grew up thinking about any of these things. Oh yeah. And so like how to how to live with that tension and then how to bring that into any space of community. I mean I I think, you know, we we talk so much about like okay, youth ministers trying to support parents as they are the primary disciplers of their kids or something like that. How the heck does that work in this situation? When the the parents right. themselves are, I mean, uh, utterly terrified, trying to figure out how do we support our kid. You're sitting there thinking, "Hey, if we don't do this, we're like putting our kid in this position, uh, statistically, to become, you know, suicidal and to, to deal with depression and anxiety in all these ways that we know uh, is going to heighten all of that."
0: It is, and it's a it's a pretty unfair uh, system because I I, I I so often thought, you know, I'm I'm educated. I have um, insurance. We have resources. We are. We have money. We have um, a community. We have all these advantages. What
1: else could you need? And it is yeah. still,
0: it was still so hard. And so to think of all the people um, who don't have even half of what I just listed, it's a, it's a, it's a family. Um, it's a pastoral care concern for a family in such a huge way and not just a child it I mean the child alone is being you know is, is butting up against the system that the world says you have to either be this or that and there is no in between and sure. and then if they are brave enough to say but I am in between you know I don't I or I am I'm closer to this end than that end um, right. that there's that there has to be a place for them because it's, it's who they are. And I think, um, to quash that, like who, who are we to say, um, you know, who, who somebody knows themselves to be. And and that's, that's been to butt up against that, those power structures. And, and I'll be the first one to say, you know, we are, we are white educated, you know, upper middle to upper class, um, college education resources every direction, and the, the odds are stacked against my child, um, mm-hmm. simply for the fact that Hunter is wanting to express to the world who she knows herself to be on the inside, because mm-hmm. it doesn't line up with what the rest of the world says she's supposed to be, and that's it's pretty messed up. And that's the catalyst for us being very vocal about this was that the North Carolina legislature passed this law in the middle of the night, in 10 hours, that no one had discussed um, in a very backhanded, undermining way to appease voters, that uh, transgender people could, um, could no longer use the bathroom that they identified with. And so Mm. even though we had done everything we were supposed to, we had Duke medical on board with us. We had therapists that talked about how important it is for Hunter to live out in public who she knows herself to be on the inside. That, that shift from looking, um, to, to look physically the way she feels on the inside is key to survival,
1: Mm -hmm. um, in this
0: age group, um, and the hormone therapy that we were able to get for her before puberty kicked in, because once it kicks in, there's no going back. Right. So we, when we made that life or death decision, but, um, so we have this power structure, even at the, at the state Capitol that in one night without asking a single person or any medical people, um he passed a law that said my kid would now no longer be able to go into a women's restroom, into a stall and use the bathroom. Right. And it became, you know, our kid would be assaulted walking into a men's bathroom because you think you're looking at a beautiful young girl.
1: Right.
0: So it's, um, you never hear, you never heard that side of it. So Hunter was living on campus at the, at UNC, In Winston-Salem, she spent her junior and senior year at um, a conservatory for um, really um, extraordinary art uh, students. And Mm. so if you live in North Carolina and you get in, uh, you go free. But it was the first public arts conservatory in the United States, and it's part Mm. of the UNC system. So she lived on a college campus with 150 other high school kids in the middle of campus, uh, musicians, dancers, artists, and actors. And she lived there for two years and now was no longer legally allowed to use the bathroom in the art studio that corresponded to her, to her. So it, she asked to become uh, part of the lawsuit against the state of North Carolina and to be an advocate for the other teenagers in the state that had no voice. Mm. And wow. um, it was a gut wrenching, you know, decision because once this, once we, decided to, um, to do that for her. Um, and to take a stand, to take a public stand as clergy, uh, uh, because we love our child and, um, and believe that this is always who she has been. That's our story. We've known it from, she was the time she was 18 months old and could speak, um, that this is part of her DNA, part of her fabric. Like this is, this is who Hunter is. And so, um, we signed on to the lawsuit and then then became you know a very public she was the only uh teenage plaintiff um with five originally five plaintiffs suing the state of north carolina um and it was a that was a sobering you know reality for our family it was great for us to to have the opportunity to be interviewed by you know um the ap and cbs and local stations and to be in newspapers. And my friend in Dallas saw us, you know, talking about that. We love our child. We are church people.
1: Right. Um,
0: this is who our child is. And, um, and, and you can't convince me otherwise because we've lived it. Right. And so, um, so, so we, we come to the place where we are, are, um, hoping to help others. Um, understand by telling our story. Right. And and a very wise person said to us, you know, if you don't tell your story, someone else is going to tell it for you. And we started right. speaking publicly. Right. We did a forum at the church. We did an adult ed at the church. And because a lot of um, the church people had watched Hunter grow up sure. here in Raleigh and they love Hunter, but they didn't also understand what was happening. And, and, um, it's a, it's an information issue in my, it's an education issue. In my opinion, people are scared of things they don't understand. Right, And so we took the opportunity as a family to do an adult ed and st- stand in front of our church community and say, look, let us tell you our story from the time Hunter was 18 months right. old. You know, here's what happened and come out in front of yeah, me. yeah. and, um, and we did a diversity day talk at um, at a prep school in New York, another Flagler graduate, uh, Mike Barbaro, who also ended up at Princeton with Neil and I. And But Mike was the chaplain up at a school in New York and mm. kept asking um, if we would come up and do a diversity day uh, lecture. Right. And so Hunter and Hannah and Mac and I went and spoke to about 600 high school kids to, um, wow. about this. And, and, you know, the sibling piece, I can't leave out, the sibling piece because I don't <laughs> I, I don't think that um, that hunter would be um, who she is without the love and support of siblings and if you know if you're doing youth ministry with with folks who are having a hard time surviving in their house you know maybe have a sibling that's that can't deal with you know them being gay or being transgender or whatever you know, that's a whole that's a whole nother piece of Um, pastoral care that needs to happen. But, but when that goes right, and when, when the messaging of, you know, you are loved, you are beautiful, wonderfully made, um, you know, when all that does um, absorb itself into a a family unit, then um, I know that that has been, that has made it infinitely easier for a hunter to feel loved and secure and safe, even at home. And, and, um, and not, you know, one of these, not one of these kids who is, you know, shunned or, um, or kicked out, you know, there's so many homeless, um, folks that, that that aren't accepted in their home anymore.
1: Right. Well, I, I feel like what you're describing is sort of the, the picture of a family and therefore the broader family of the church that we would all want to be true, that, no matter what you do, no matter who you are, no matter what happens, you belong here. You're welcome. You are loved. Like I can't imagine right. not saying that right. to one of my kids. And I think this is what's helpful, Katie, because you just said, you know, hey, like, yeah. this is our kid. Like we're gonna yeah. do this because it's our kid. And at the end of the day, when you know and love someone, it changes the way it that does. you handle the situation. And and I'm thinking now, so I'm, I'm channeling my my friends that may have already stopped listening to this episode um, or that are really skeptical or really hesitant about this. And I, I, I want to figure out how to invite them into this conversation, not to tell them, you know, you're wrong if you don't think this way or that way, or that you have to read it this way or that way. Because I think there are people out there that want to take scripture seriously. They want to do the exegesis. They want to think, uh, you know, faithfulness is is a really high value to them, right? But that's also, those are high values to you. And oh yeah, uh, bound up within you and Mac and your experience here is holding those things together With loving this child that you were entrusted with. Right.
0: And so the whole, um, undergirding and foundation of us as parents is, is, you know, my, my experience growing up in the Episcopal church, my, my huge involvement with young life through high school at Nice high school. I mean, my leaders were from Flagler college and who are my mentors still today. Um, and then, you know the philosophy, religion degree, and the love of Maddie Hart and Martha Shen, and the the imprinting upon our hearts to love kids, and um, and the great love of Jesus, and 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 then you you get all the theology at Princeton Seminary, and all these things, and then you have a baby, and then that baby isn't like other babies, and it's like, I, you know, who could have ever you can't imagine that when when I was sitting in Keenan Hall, you know, listening to Dr. Hart, I wasn't. I was. I was thinking of my twenty-year-old self, of course, and even as a thirty-year-old self at Princeton Seminary Pre-Children, I wasn't. I wasn't part of the LGBT community. I wasn't even an advocate or an ally. I, it was it was off my radar. I didn't even know, I hardly knew anybody that was gay. It was like, it was a non-issue, but I, but it was all there. I just, um, it, it, it sinks. I think the, the sinking in of um, the theology and what I know to be true, that, uh, that we are God's beloved children, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. I have been entrusted with this beautiful child, four beautiful children that I'm not going to treat any different. I, I, was, I was gifted, you know, a baby that was designed and knit together in my womb to be exactly who she is. The world did not make Hunter who she is. I saw it from the time this child could speak. And it's like, what do you do yeah. with all that theology and all of all of the love that you know exists from your own life and your own upbringing, um, uh, the the ministry pieces, the care and concern of decades of caring for kids through young life and through youth ministry, and uh, and the husband that stands in the pulpit every week and says the same benediction. And here's his benediction: Be strong and courageous. Stand firm in your faith. Let all you do be done in love. May you know God's smile and that you are loved beyond your wildest imagination. So my kid has been sitting in a pew for 18 years listening to their dad in a pulpit say that. And so how, how could we do anything other than figure out how to love our kid the best way we know how, with the right resources, with, with as much help as we could garner from people who are smarter than us and understood what, what is the medical component here? What is the psychological component here? Mm -hmm. You know, we've got the spiritual component a little covered because our kid was raised in the church, knows God loves them, baptized, confirmed, you know, what there, that cannot be the point Where we turn our back, right? It cannot.
1: Well, you know, Katie, as you just said that, like so beautifully, I thought you could literally substitute when you spoke about child with the church or the community or the congregation that you have been entrusted with. So you have all the theology and all the training and all the preparation, and then you have a child, or and then you walk into the reality of a congregation and a community or a town. And it all doesn't just add up neatly right. the way that it did in theory. That's
0: a great- and
1: so then you have people that hurt each other. You have people that let each other down. You have families that are ripped apart. You have people that are non-gender conforming. Uh-oh, what do we do now with our theology? Right. Uh-oh, these people don't play by the rules that we thought they should or would. Right. What do we do now? And what does it actually mean to have been sent to a community or to a town or to a school? Or in your case, you know, having been sent a child.
0: Well, we started it from scratch and and we just looked at each other and thought, okay, what do we need to know? Like what, what do we, we are educated people, but we don't know anything about this. (laughs) What books do we need to find? Like, where is the, where are the studies? What do we need to know? Because we are embarking on um, a, a topic that we know nothing about except the lived experience in our house, so some yeah. of this was, was figuring out, like, what do people already know about this who have studied it? I mean, I think that there's a, yeah. that there's a um, you know, it's really important to, to be open enough to be, um, to figure out, well, what do I not know? Because I don't know. I'm, you know, the, the Avett brothers have in the song 10,000 Voices. I think it is. And, and Scott's like, you know, um, Aina, Aina, we're, aren't we all, like most people? We all talk about things we don't know about. Um, right. And, and that <laughs> happens a lot. And we felt like, you know what? We need to know as much as we can. We need to dig around. We need to find other people like us who understand in a way who also have been raising a kid in their house that has this that gender nonconforming? we had, mm-hmm. we felt very alone. I mean, for all of the community and there, we had no one to talk to except each other. Um, right. there, there was like an LGBT, um, you know, the P flag, uh, group, parents and friends of lesbian and gay, um, people i there was no one in there that had a transgender child so so even even attempting to find a support group um, we did not find anyone who was like us and so right. what has been absolutely incredible is that over these past like 3 years people search and find us mm-hmm. <laughs> not a month goes by that mac especially because mac's easier to find as a as a pastor and often the new york times and the lawyers were pushing him forward standing with hunter to make a statement during all of the hb2 lawsuit stuff because mac was clergy mm-hmm. and people were fascinated and wanted to hear this big i mean mac is six four and 240 pounds and huge norwegian strong looking guy and to stand with hunter um and to speak out against the fear of of something that that people don't understand because they don't know anyone who has a transgender kid and and so i'm i'm never i don't find myself angry at people because um I really feel like it's an education piece mm-hmm. that, that once you know, somebody it changes things. And that's why, like, all we can do is tell our story um, that mm-hmm. this is who our kid is and we love our child. And, um, and we, we chose life over, over the potential or the possibility of, of, of Hunter taking her life. You know, right. it just, it was, it, it was a non-option. Right um and not something that I was ever we any of us were ever willing to go down
1: that path. Well, and it it sounds like there's there's a couple of steps back even further from uh, her taking her own life. I mean, just the hiddenness or the reality of being hushed or yeah. put away and sort of squashed as a person yes. itself is enough of a problem. Yes. And so if we
0: You know that's so funny you said that. Go.
1: Why? Tell me. <laughs>
0: well, Hunter, um, well, because the first time Hunter um, went to uh, a protest, she made this sign, and she kept saying this one line she's, and, and painted it on this one sign that actually ended up in the New York Times. But the, the sign said, um, trans youth are valid, and then she checked the box, and then we exist, and checked the box, and then said, have human rights. Have basic human rights and check the box. And that mm. was her placard that she took down to the North Carolina legislature. Wow. And I, it was the first inklings I had of understanding what she meant by, you know what? We exist. And you mm. can't tell us we don't because we do. Because I'm and here. Because um, <laughs> I'm here. Wow. And, uh, and I understand and appreciate that in a different way because she's not either or. You know, she's not... She's not the cultural what the right. culture says a, a, a boy is supposed to be is that is not who my kid is. And she is right. has a beautiful heart and soul and um, is kind and empathetic and lovely and um, and is doesn't check, you know, check somebody's box.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, well, and I would want to add to that placard of hers, like a theological lens to that would be the beloved of God, created yeah. in the image of God, yep. the, the, the person in whom we experience the risen Christ. And if that's true, then it changes everything. It changes the way that we encounter Hunter, the way that we think about Hunter, the way that we make room for Hunter in our church. And, and so, I mean, this, I, I think I mentioned this to you before, but the uh, the, one of the lines that just has stuck with me from my days at Princeton Seminary was Daryl Guter saying, you'll never lock eyes with someone who was not created in the image of God and for whom Christ did not die. That person simply does not exist. Right. And, and if that becomes the way in which we begin to start our conversation – you know, I, I don't think that's a good place to end up eventually. I think it's actually where we should start with our our proper understanding of what it means to encounter another person, regardless of race or ability, disability, sexual orientation, you know, yeah. mental health, what, whatever it might be. Like those are all subcategories of the greatest sort of truest aspect of who they are, that they were created in the image of God and Christ died for them. And therefore there is something about them that is good and right and beautiful in themselves, period.
0: And that is
1: the starting point. Yeah.
0: Simply because they're human.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The created. Yes. Created in
0: the image of God. Yes. Mm -hmm. And, And so I, we, we just can't stray too far from that as parents because, because of our, you know, experience with the church and, and, our, our upbringing and our education and seminary and, you know, all of the things that have informed um, how we um, operate, but we're operating out of a place of compassion. That's where, that's where it, like, I, I, have said that to other people, like I have got to come down on the side of compassion mm-hmm. because I don't have to understand all of this and, and God has to be bigger than I ever maybe understood in my twenties or thirties or even forties. I'm Mm -hmm. 52. I'll be 52 this summer. That's right. Um, (laughs) but, but it is, um, I feel like it's been, it's, it's made me love people more having a transgender child. I just, Mm -hmm. I feel like I look at the world differently. I really do. Um, and it's just, um, it's just been a, a remarkable, Experience to not fight it, but to um, to try to understand it, and to to feel like you know my my child was knit together exactly the way she is, and um, in my womb, and um, you know is different from the other three siblings. Um, each of them is is different in their own ways, all coming from the same two people. So, what do you do with that? I mean, the world did not make Hunter who she is, you know, God, God made Hunter who she is and we are figuring out how to let her um, live that out Mm -hmm. as uncomfortable as that, as that makes people, um, you know, it, it made me uncomfortable too for, for a really long time. And I just couldn't let go of the theological piece of this though, that that this is, our child, our beloved child of God.
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: and that that's got to be the foundation that we operate out of.
1: So, but Katie, you've been given this gift of Hunter to, uh, usher you into that understanding or to, yeah. um, at times maybe drag you (laughs) into that clarity and that understanding. You know, part of what we're doing in the grant here is working with a handful of churches around the state of Florida who are trying to walk into these spaces that for many of them is maybe terrifying and an unknown space. And yet they know we have to, we have to go there. We can't not go there, you know? Um, And so we have a handful of churches right now, literally sitting in my office, looking at the whiteboard, and I have uh, a couple churches on there that are saying, "Hey, we want to try yeah. and design and innovate around youth ministry for young people in the LGBTQ community." Yeah. You know, so what does that look like? Is yeah. sort of their question, and how do we do this? And and I, I wonder if you might have any sort of. Thoughts yeah. for them in yeah. terms of hey we're we're getting started maybe we know and love a hunter or someone else uh, but man what in yeah. the world does it look like to support these families and to support these individuals and right. to make room to embrace and receive their gifts
0: you know at early on um, when when everything was very confusing um, I I feel like I was looking for little signs and signals. And I, I wrote about this just recently and it got published in the April 1st edition of the Presbyterian Outlook um, about some of my experiences from, um, from when we were all figuring out as a family um, that I was always looking for signs somewhere. And, and what, what I have come to understand is that even having like a little sticker, I now have a sticker on my door of my office here at First Pres that is a little rainbow heart. And, and any parent that walks past my door that might have an inkling in their, in their head that one of their children may not be straight, you know, um, they're going to see my sticker and they're going to know that I, they could talk to me. And it's just, it's so simple. And I was, I was craving small signs, any signs I could get that, um, that my kid was going to be safe. So, um before Hunter, before it was public. Um, I, I talk also in this article about, um, you know, I, I think we used to do it in young life. Right? I probably did it myself where we talk about well, pink stay with pink and blue stay with blue and you can't make purple. And I have a great story <laughs> in this article because my kid is purple right. and, and you know, Hunter went to a Presbyterian camp where they said that. And, um, it rained all weekend, and she was not allowed to be with with the girls. And it she came home that weekend crushed. And we had sent her away to be at church camp, knowing it would be safe. She, you know, she has a, a great youth minister, um, and then you know the people running the camp, you know, were going over the rules and talked about that. Mm-hmm. And and she was basically you know stuck into. Um, her cabin for the rest of the weekend during free time. Cause she couldn't be with the girls. So it, she came home, you know, really sad. I just can't, the stress levels in our house were uh, like off the charts for, yeah. for Mac and I as parents, because there is no playbook. Every parent is figuring out on a daily basis how to deal with, you know, what's she going to come downstairs wearing to go to church? Are we going to have clothing battles before we even walk out the door? Right. You know, what, what's going on that we can, um, that we have a handle on. And most of the time, every day there was something sure. um, that we, that we just didn't know how to to handle. And, and I, I, I think a single parent, I can't even imagine how tough that would be because at no. least Mac and I had each other and and we have the same kind of background as far as theology and, um, where we were coming from. Cause what we also see so much of this is the, is people that one parent is not where the other parent is. And so there's this added tension, um, between the parents and then you throw in a child. And so, mm-hmm. so I think that, um, you know how I how I word things in my um like in my newsletters, I'm pretty careful. I'm pretty careful. I'm more um more sensitive to um to kind of say, you no, know, families of all types, family not just all families can come come, but families of all kinds are welcome. Right. You know, just like right. these little shifts in words and um and and not um even if I have like props for a skit or something that I'm not just handing all the pink ones to the girls, there, right. there are very small shifts that a kid that might be wrestling with who am I, you know, how do I pr- talk about myself to the world? They're going to notice. And there's, right. there are parents that are going to notice and be thankful. Right. And, um, yeah. and I, um, I, in the, in the, um, the Presbyterian Outlook article, I really get a little bit more into depth with that, but I, um, it was just, uh, important to see physically, um, what might be out there. Like when Hunter started high school, I went online and thought, oh my goodness, is there a is there a club for you know the gay kids? I mean, right. you know, it was that kind of thing. Right. And there was no there was no GSA, there was no Gay Straight Alliance Club mm-hmm. on the website. Well, apparently there was one, but it wasn't posted. Right. But I was a parent, <laughs> oh, I was the parent that needed to see that right. to feel okay about dropping my kid off at school, wondering. You know, are they going to get you know attacked in the hall for for looking the way she does? She's wearing a pink fur coat, and you know, so there's there's just some right. some some visible signs that are so little to other people that me that would have meant so much to me as a parent, yeah. um, and and those things they're tangible, um, easy shifts. That I I feel like we have a responsibility to to give. Right. You know, I I go visit um, babies that have just been born with the children's ministry piece, and we have a knitting group. And um, when I first got here, there were only pink blankets and blue blankets, and I was like, I can't do this. I can't I can't just take a pink and a blue blanket for somebody that just had a new baby because you don't know what that baby's gonna end up being. That's a that's just a baby. They can't express a single thing right now.
1: and <laughs>
0: That is exactly what I had. You know, I had a, a baby that I thought was going to be a little boy in all the sense of the words, you know, and then got to be 18 months old and right. the only thing that came out of Hunter's mouth. So I now, when I visit a baby in the hospital, I'll take a yellow, a purple, a pink, a blue, a cream. Uh, I'll take five different blankets and, and let someone choose. And not a sign from the minute a baby is born, a pink blanket, you know, it just like that. I can't do it. Um, so, yeah. but, but, but that's really, I mean, my life and my, my motherhood, like that has informed how I'm doing ministry now Right. Um, to, I work with zero to fifth grade, um, here at first press full time, um, and their families and, um, And feel like, you know, this isn't, there aren't rainbow flags flying out in front of this church and there isn't a lot talked about, but I have a unique and special place from my own story to, um, to, to put the signals out there that if there is anybody, you know, I'm your go-to person, you know, come talk to me. I, I, I understand in a different way than, than somebody else is going to, and, right That's a lived experience well it's interesting
1: you say that I mean I had some I had some friends that uh, were looking for a church and they said you know look I'm not looking for every Sunday to be a protest you know uh, or to be a riot uh, like a rally or something I I just want a place that I know I can belong and so it's funny like it sounds to me like you're saying hey there's a lot of little things that you can do And, and that would be fine by the way like I think that There would be some element of the church that should stand, you know, prophetically Mm -hmm. against the norms of Mm -hmm. culture and the norms of the church itself uh, to make room for people to belong. But I do think that it's a lot of little things, and that sounds like friendship. That sounds like uh, real community.
0: Yeah, it's relation. Yeah, I mean, it's earning the right. You know, it's all that stuff. It's earning the right to be heard. It's the relational ministry, and 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 being brave enough to step out in those moments that, that, um, where Mm -hmm. that is presented to you to be a prophetic voice. We have had to do that. And it has taken courage and it has taken prayer and really believing that this is a moment to step forward. And that was part of, you know, joining that lawsuit. Hunter was a minor. So we, it's our names on that, you know, but, but that was that moment, um, and publishing this, Publishing this thing, the Presbyterian Outlook. I, I, there's probably plenty of people, you know, here at, at in Raleigh that, um, or at First Pres even, that don't really know much about, you know, my story. Um, and it was when I was approached with the opportunity to write the article, I just thought, you know what, I, I need to do this, and right. um, and to take the opportunity when it presents itself. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to present a, a workshop at APSI at the um, at the conference. Um, in 2020, because I know there's people that, uh, have questions. There's gotta be a safe place to ask, um, really what you're doing now. Like what, what do we need to know? You know, what does sure. it feel like? How do we minister to families and people who, um, who are figuring this out as they go yeah. and, and what, how can we love and support them and, and come down on the side of compassion because the alternative is just, just, just so much worse. And, and I just, um, I just don't feel like that's grounded in who I have been raised to be through my, you know, education and my time at Flagler and the youth ministry program and North Palm and Princeton. It's like all these worlds. Um, and, and yes, there, are, there are folks that highly disagree with what we would stand for that I love, I still love those people in North right. Palm, you know, um, be- and that's okay because you know, they're they're not Hunter's mom, and and I we feel pretty um, as parents, feel pretty um, um, well grounded in what we know to be true for ourselves, and and how we can use that to um, to help people. And you know, often the people that call Mac are clergy. Oh yeah. They don't have anybody to talk to and sure. then it's happening in their own family. Right. And they know that if they tell their congregation, um, They're out. oftentimes it's Baptist preachers that have contacted Mac because the, the, the congregation can, you know, fire them sure. easily. You know, at least in the Presbyterian church, we have, you know, the denominational safeguards of um, committees and, uh, you know, jurisdiction over things. But, um, but just you know, people are people. People need to talk, and they they need to know there's a safe place mm-hmm. to to do that.
1: Um, yeah, yeah. It's interesting, you know. If if I were to try and think through some of the themes that you've brought up, you you've talked about parents and the the sort of toll that it takes on parents to navigate this with children to try and support them. You've talked a little bit about, you know, everything changes when you know and love someone, and. Yeah. Uh, and so the, the sort of the the call there is to not be afraid to get to know and love someone. And I think that that, it, that applies to every one of the categories or, or people groups that we're seeking to learn from and to mm-hmm. make room for is, you know, when you know and love someone of a different ethnic or racial background, you you think and speak differently about that ethnic background or, or that racial or that race group. I mean, th- those are those categories begin to dissolve and the people yeah. themselves are elevated when, when that happens. And so yeah. the other thing though, that I, I wrote down in about five different ways on my little notepad here <laughs> is this idea of like the, the hiddenness of all this. And I just, yeah. I, I remember distinctly sitting with a young man who said, you know, I've known he was a senior in high school and he said, I've known I was gay since I was you know four or five years old mm-hmm. and I have prayed for years for that to not be true. And I have tried to get myself to uh, to like girls. I have tried to, I mean, it went so far as to talk about trying to get himself to be aroused by uh, pornography that, you know, w- that all of his friends were watching. I mean, he felt so much shame and, and fear and anger about who he was. And he never told a single person until he told me when he was 18 years old. And he, the here's how he opened it. He said, Justin, you know, I have to tell you, uh, the worst thing that you can possibly imagine. Uh, and in that moment for whatever reason I felt like this was like this this holy spirit moment of God saying how you react right now is going to matter. He's going to tell you that he's gay and how you react uh, is going to matter. And so he went on to say, you know, I'm gay. And I said I sort of like dropped my shoulders and let out a big sigh like, "Oh, thank God. You know, I thought you were going to tell me something really bad." And his disposition sort of lifted. He's like, "What?" You know, and And we ended up saying, you know, I said, I thought you were going to tell me you were like dying or, or something horrible. Like, you know, I love you no matter what, man. Like this is something we can talk about, but the other stuff was really scary. And he had this grin on his face, like, wait a minute, like I, I can actually talk about this with you. And so we've gone on now for years to talk about that. But the saddest thing to me that could bring me to tears if we talk about it too much is that he went on to share with me stories of years of wanting to talk to somebody and knowing that he couldn't, because if he brought it up at church, it would be done. It would be, you know, it's over. If he told his parents, he thought it would be over. His parents ended up being amazing. I knew they would and uh, embraced him fully. And so, but he still wrestles with, you know, how do I follow Jesus as a gay man? And he had very, very little imagination for what that could look like, you know? Um,
0: Yeah, that the message is you're not okay the way you are. I mean, that that's the, the, you know, the world often, most of the time says it, the church says it, and it's like, it's, it's counter to everything the gospel teaches us. I I mean, Uh I I just, you come back to, to imagining what the pain that that kid has, you know, that person carried around for that they, that they were not going to be okay to just say be their authentic self and um and that's just that's just it's all yeah
1: it's yeah and i i can't live with the idea that he would have um not been able to be a part of that youth ministry For all those years if he had come out earlier like that the thought of him if had he come out that meant Mm. he could not be a part of things would have been detrimental for his own formation his own spiritual life and very many of his friends that he led in so many other ways I just think what a huge miss that would be Mm. but I, I know that there are a lot of churches and a lot of youth ministers right now wanting to take steps in this direction to say hey you know, what if they could belong? What if they would be welcome? What if someone who is, you know, of a different sexual orientation than the, you know, heteronormativity that is sort of accepted and and, uh, expected of everyone? What if those people might have gifts to offer and might be really important for our community? And I think that's, that's what we want to try and do in the Missing Voices Mm -hmm. Project. It's what we're hoping a couple churches are going to wade into those waters Mm -hmm. together. Um, but I have to say, like when you mentioned like books and stuff, like resources, there's just, there's next to nothing yeah. in the youth ministry world in this space. I mean, I found a couple things here and there, but, um, it really does feel like uncharted territory in terms of, it you know, does. how do we, you know, take, take our faith tradition and our, and the scriptures and
0: oh, yeah. a commitment I mean, to the
1: Christian community seriously, and say you are, you know, you belong.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I don't know what's out there. I mean, there's a book transgender 101 that we finally found that was that was really good to even understand like the brain chemistry and the yeah. the just kind of the, the background like it was kind of what I was talking about like what do we need to know as parents to help our kid live the best life possible in 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 an area that we don't even know anything about. I mean, and it's an, that's where the education piece comes in. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I just, I have no idea what's out there that that um, pulls theology or anything into that. I don't, I don't know what's out there. Yeah. As a resource, I just. Yeah. I'm, I'm drawing a blank.
1: No, well, that's because there's not much to draw on. So I think, though, I mean, essentially, if we were to try and boil this down to. Um, I mean, I guess we shouldn't try to boil the whole conversation down. But if we were to try and draw some, some sort of common threads here, what I really hear you saying more than anything is to take the individual, the person seriously, and to sort of have that posture of commitment, compassion, and love, and let that be where you start. And that's deeply grounded in your experience of having been loved by God. I mean, this is sort of, we are able to love like this because we ourselves have been loved. I mean, this is the the foundation of who we are, um, of having been called the beloved children of God ourselves, having been adopted into the family of God, to then understand that the sort of grace that we are able to extend, the love and welcome and belonging that we're able to extend to others is rooted in our own experience of that love, grace, and belonging that has been extended to us. And so I I have no clue what's going to happen, Katie. Like these churches, <laughs> like I love these people who are willing to step out into the situation yeah. and to risk. Uh, my guess is at least a third, if not more, of these projects are going to fail, fall flat on their face. And they're going to learn so much by doing it that that'll be the win in and of itself. Yeah. Um, but I'm, I'm really excited that there's some folks who are going to try and over the next couple of years – seriously say, you know, what does it mean to love and serve young people who have not only been overlooked or forgotten in the church, but have been for the most part, nothing but harmed by the church. Right. Um, So, okay, Katie, in closing, would you have a, I would love for you to extend an invitation to our listeners, if you would, I didn't warn you or prep you for this at all. (laughs) But would you extend some sort of invitation to those people listening right now, uh, to encounter the hunters that are in their backyards. Um, how, how would you want to invite them to ministry like that?
0: Um, wait, am I talking, to, like, do I pretend I'm talking to um, youth pastors or, you know, like clergy people?
1: Yes, all okay. of those people. Oh, all this this is this is your right. benediction. This is okay, the moment. This is, this is the mic drop. <laughs> right.
0: Yeah, oh, gosh. I'm compelled to um to challenge people about the ideas of of the limits of god that we put that we have probably put on god um Mm -hmm. in in different stages of our life whether we knew it or not Um, i have felt my heart expand and my understanding of the gospel and the kingdom of god has grown um, as i have learned to love and live with a transgender child and all the um, fascinating and difficult and interesting dynamics that that involves, um, as I understand, how to fully love my child, and um, mm-hmm. and that as families understand their own children, that we would be the source of compassion of whatever that looks like. It's going to look different for everyone, and um, it's going to take. It may take a while to get there, but every every step forward that broadens our, our embrace, um, Mm. is going to bring us to a better place and, and to a more loving posture. And I just, I hope, I hope people can, um, people that are listening can stop for a second. And, um, it is hard to imagine, um, when it's not your own child, but, um, but we're called to, to love all and, and to, to try Mm -hmm. to understand, um, that we are not an either or, but, um, the Mm -hmm. breadth and the beauty and the depth of the God that we worship is evident in, um, in all of humanity in every Mm -hmm. way, shape, and form. And that is, that is not how I grew up thinking. And uh, it has been an evolving process, but I'm, I'm very grateful. I feel more loving than I have, um, perhaps in decades, um, as my heart mm. has learned to to broaden its mm. its, its um, path.
1: I mean, that's pretty solid. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: There is there is a there is a promise in there. I mean, I think that this is it's so interesting. Every conversation I have with one of these churches, it always ends up back at this promise. This anticipating encountering God in people that we have assumed that we wouldn't encounter God in. And so um, I, yeah. So when you say, I hope you're encouraged and you talk about the idea of of children, I think about the baptismal promises that the congregation makes. You know, these are kids uh, that we have have decided to call our own when they sit up there in the arms of the pastor and have a little water sprinkled over their head, you know, we stand up as a congregation, at least in our tradition, in the Presbyterian tradition, we stand up and we make these yes. promises that we will be your family, that you will be a part of us, and that we will commit to your formation. Like yeah. that, that you belong here, you are welcome here, you know, we will uh, raise you in a way that to know what is true of you, that God loves you. And and I mean, that is, that promise doesn't end when someone discovers uh, that they uh, are non-gender conforming.
0: Amen. That's, that's it right there. That is the, that is the work of the church to do um, the baptismal vows. We promise the responsibility Mm -hmm. we have um, if we're following Jesus to, to live that out with compassion and grace Um, All those things. And, and it, and it is not always going to be comfortable. I I (laughs) would encourage people, you know, of that too, because I, I, it has, it has taken um, every day to, to, um, to learn and grow. And, and that's been a beautiful Hmm. thing. Sometimes it's a harder thing, but it is a, it is, has been an amazing journey.
1: Yeah excellent well Katie thank you so much we could talk um, a lot longer I'm sure but I've already taken an hour of your time at least here so thank you and I hope that we have fun stories to share with you in the next couple of years here from Flagler and awesome. um, we're grateful for your your voice and your witness and uh, we're grateful for the gift of Hunter to you and your family and um, yeah it's good stuff
0: thank you thank you
1: go Saints go Saints <laughs> all right everybody thanks so much for listening to this episode of the missing voices project you can learn more about what we are up to at missingvoices.flagler.edu that's missingvoices.flagler.edu I want to thank Noble Media for their production of the podcast and Troy Aragon Buchanan for the original music. We believe there are good and wonderful gifts to be enjoyed and voices to be lifted up and heard that exist at the margins of society and the church. I hope today's conversation might just push you to keep these young people in mind. What if your youth ministry made room for the kids we talked about today? Until next time, be well.